All right. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity. Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so we're back up with the Catechism. I believe we're on page 45. This is like this lovely, I love these like slow walks through the Catechism. They're just so fun because it's, you know, it's just, there's, there's time for these things. But uh, with this new time setting, we should have a lot more time for catechesis, and that'll be uh, a benefit, I hope. Um, We've been talking about uh, the person of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his, uh, his eternal uh, sonship uh, and uh, eternal begottenness of the Father, um, his incarnation, his life, death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, uh, and now we're focusing on his coming judgment. Um, this is a, uh, an interesting thing because uh, a lot of people have sort of jettisoned an understanding of judgment. Um, they think, oh, well, you know, God's not really a, a judgy pants. I don't really want to think about God as being judgmental or anything like that. And, and I think that's a fairly limited view of judgment, although certain things that you would imagine are included in that, uh, like punishment, like uh, all those things. But I want to say, uh, before we get started in this, that um, judgment in, in Scripture, at least, is separating one kind of thing from another. Okay, so that's, that's kind of a really important thing, and, and uh, the, the best story I can tell to illustrate this is a bishop friend of mine uh, used to take annual pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and he was leading a pilgrimage one time, and, and, uh, and he looked outside the bus, and, and uh, all the people on the bus were just horrified, just, just horrified, because there was what they thought was a shepherd just beating on the hind legs of his flock mercilessly, and the, the legs of the uh, of these poor animals were bleeding, and, and the, the people on the bus were just like, what is going on? Like, what kind of shepherd does this? And they asked up to the, bo- to the, to the bus driver, and the bus driver said, that's not a shepherd, that's a goat herd. Like, they're being led to the slaughter. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what, what difference does it make if we beat the uh, beat their legs? You know, and of course, I think in this country we would not really appreciate that. But but in the Middle East, it's like, well, you know, goats don't have feelings. You know, all those things, and and they're just there to be eaten, and uh, and it's low quality meat anyway. And so here we go. Um, but but that is an image that's used in Scripture, right? The difference between sheep and goats, and what's the difference? Sheep, you must keep alive and healthy and, and uh, unscarred because you want them to yield wool, right? They're not a meat animal. Um, lamb is a meat animal, and those are boys. <laughs> but, but, but for sheep, you want them to, to uh, mature, and usually mature sheep are female, which is a really interesting thing as well um, when we speak about judgment because... Uh, this is part of the reason that the church is, is called she, is that the church is the bride. The church is, um, is, the, uh, is the bride of the lamb, right? Um, so that's just another, another kind of thought there. Um, goats, on the other hand, are, are troublesome. They're, uh, now, now, some people love goats and they keep them, um, but the reality of it is that goats are raised for meat and milk and all the other things, and, and they're not... Uh, they don't have to be kept in the kind of condition that sheep are kept in. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? 
Um, I, I actually think we do really well to get to know shepherds, uh, and uh, because shepherds are really amazing people, and they and they do things that are uh, that are uh, beyond most modern people, our comprehension just sort of falls apart. It's like, well, you know, wait, you stay up all night with them? Sometimes, yes. Uh, you know, um, and, and they, uh, they mourn the loss of a you um, that sometimes has to happen. Um, so it's all just to say that, that, uh, that all that is, is in view here. Um, so shall we, shall we continue on? I think, I think we reached... Uh, uh, question 79, which is, how should you understand Jesus' future judgment? All people, whether living or dead, will be judged by Jesus Christ. Those apart from Christ will receive eternal rejection and punishment in hell, while those who are in Christ will receive eternal blessing and welcome into the fullness of life with God. Um, scripture is, um, speaks of salvation in a variety of ways, let's just say that. Um, and it's, and it's, um, it's not simple by any standards because uh, the language is, is of, uh, certainly of salvation. But the question is, how does that really work out? What's that about? Um, and lots of different idioms are used. Lots of different parables are used. And so uh, this is a kind of um, highly finessed, uh, uh, concise answer to this. But I do want to say this, that, that uh, the key word in the New Testament, at least, is in Christ. Um, uh, I believe the, the phrase, that simple phrase, in Christo, in Greek, appears 34 times in the New Testament. So it's important, right? And it doesn't appear in the Gospels. It appears in uh, the writings of Paul, um, in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, all over the New Testament. Well, what's it saying? There's something really important here. Well, at a certain point, it's the language of clothing, right? It's like... Those of you who, uh, who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. Um, I use a little story to illustrate this, but one time I was, I was nearly late to a Good Friday service. And, uh, and, it was, and we were having to get there you know, an hour early because it was, you know, it was Good Friday and it's an important day and we want to be there early. And anyway, so I, I was racing in my car to get to, uh, to church at that point. And uh, I had this little uh, 1984 Nissan 300ZX. It was red with T-tops. It was not the kind of car that you expect a priest to drive, but it was what I had. And uh, it was fast, too. That car was fast. And uh, I got pulled over, of course, on my way to Good Friday. And I'm dressed exactly like I am before you right now. And, uh, and the, the officer who pulled me over took one look at me, and he said, Good Friday, yeah? You late? He said, yep. He's like, Try to slow down, please. And he let me go. And, and I, 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 uh, I, I had my Easter sermon that coming Easter Sunday. And I was like, there's, an, there's, there's the right words for you. Because I wasn't let off the hook because I was innocent. I was guilty. I was let off the hook because of how I was dressed. Um, and, and to be clothed in Christ is, is the language of salvation. Like that's the language that, that is used about baptism, right? Um, uh, to be baptized into Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is key in the New Testament. Um, to be incorporated into Christ, to be a partaker of Christ. Um, and, and that always entails, and, and has always entailed, um, believing as well, faithful believing. 
The problem is that today, many many Christians in America, at least, uh, and, and actually in other places in the world following in that tradition, um, have come to believe that it's just about what you believe. And in fact, Christians have, have, um, have said, yeah, well, it is about believing, right? There's no doubt about that. But it's also about, like, bigger questions of identity, of uh, who you are in Christ. Um, and part of the problem today, and I'll just be blunt with you, is to say um, people are, are, uh, are, we live in a time of, of um, well, let me, just, let me just be blunt, okay? Searching for an identity uh, as a Christian that is not in Christ is going to always end up in heartbreak and sin and falsehood and the rest. And here's the problem. The problem is that uh, for American Christians, uh, we've come to say, well, the only thing that really matters is what you believe. So identity things don't matter at all. Like, I can have whatever identity I want just as long as I believe. Well, read the New Testament, and you'll find that's just not true. Um, the, the Christian is entirely bound to Christ. Um, and, and that's actually the meaning of the word religion, by the way, is, is being bound with a vow. Um, and uh, it's, it was for this reason that ancient Christians took vows before being baptized. Um, it's why they professed the faith as they were being baptized in many cases. Um, so I want you to really get that, that, that for, for Christians throughout the centuries um, and in the New Testament, the understanding is not that baptism is sort of abstracted from believing. We don't think that at all because that's just not the truth. Baptism and believing go hand in hand. And you might say, well, what about infants? They can't believe. And you say, well, I don't, I'm not entirely sure about that. However, is believing still essential to their salvation and life? Absolutely. They absolutely. You bet it is. Um, that's why we say to parents and godparents, they must be taught all of these things. Um, so, good so far? Okay. That's, that's the identity of the Christian, right? And I think, I think this answer gives that pretty well. Those who are in Christ will receive eternal blessing and welcome into the fullness of life with God. Now, stepping back a bit, those apart from Christ, so it's using these languages, in Christ and apart from Christ. Um, now, I'll just say to you, I do not oppose the idea at all that there might be such a thing as a noble pagan who is just irascibly ignorant and might uh, come to know uh, a Christ in whom he has not come to name, right? Um, and may be accepted on the merits of his sort of, you know, whatever it might be. But we really have to be careful with that because sometimes that can be a kind of, um, a kind of way of speaking to a kind of Pelagian idea that, you know, just really good people can also go to heaven too apart from Christ. No. Um, if anything, we should say something about how it might be possible um, on the day of judgment to accept the God that you have, Put your faith in un unknowingly, right? Um, it's, it's sort of like that character in C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. The uh, what's his name? He, he's, he's he's a Tarkon, and he, you know he he but he, and he he knows the God in whom he trusts, right? But it's not quite the God of, of his of his people. Um, it's something a little bit different. Um, and yet, uh, Lewis says, well, he's always essentially believed in 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 the God of in in, in Aslan, essentially. Um, but that's just, that, those are speculative questions, right? Let's just say those are speculative questions. Another question that often arises in the midst of this is like, well, you know, what do you think about, about uh, these kind of ideas of universalism, right? 
And, and I'll just say, I explicitly reject them because I believe in judgment, right? That's one of the first things that we have to say is, um, I believe in judgment. Um, however, having said that, um, I have no doubt that it is the will of God to unite all things to his beloved son. Okay? Let's, I'll just say that. I have no doubt about that. Um, however, I think some of these floppy, uh, kind of happy ideas of universalism are garbage. And it's, they're precisely garbage because they're so happy and sort of like have a really good outlook on judgment. Like, oh, well, Jesus is just going to be really, you know, kind and nice to everybody like we expect him to be. Well, hold up. Like, um, and my eyes were really open to this uh, uh, in, a, in a class I took on, on Origen, the church father who's sort of accused of universalism. But Origen doesn't preach universalism. What he, in fact, says is, like, the torment of having to be subjected to a kind of eternal catechesis is awful, right? It's, it's bad, and you don't want to go through it, right? But Jesus will win, ultimately, over and above your, your objections, okay? Now, is that something that I, that I hold? No, I don't. Uh, but I think if you're going to try to gravitate towards that, that's about as... Christian as you can get when it comes to having an idea of universalism, right? It's just this, please hold that, um, that there's something in you which has to be burned and ground out, right? Um, and it's all because of the grace of God that that happens, all because of the grace of Jesus that, that happens, okay? So I just want to be clear about that. I think, I think there's this sort of idea of like, well, God just wants to be fine and dandy with everybody. Well, you know, I don't know what kind of dysfunctional house you grew up in, but, but that's not okay, right? Like, things have to be fixed. That's really important. Um, so, are we good there? Right. Now, I believe in an eternal damnation. I'm just going to make you very clear on that. I think Anglicans are abundantly clear on that question. Um, and it's not because we think that, um, that God is sort of mean and nasty. It's because we actually believe there are consequences to this life, eternal consequences to this life. Um, and because um, of uh, a sort of dogged understanding that, um, you know, what Scripture says is really tr is just there, right? It's just there that um, this life is not inconsequential. Um, things matter in this life. Um, so there you got it, right? Okay, now who's judged? Let's, let's just kind of go back to the high level. The living and the dead. Right. So the understanding is that, uh, and we're going to get to this, but that the dead will be raised, and together with the dead, those who are still alive will be judged. That's the teaching of, of Paul in Thessalonians, at First Thessalonians, places like that. Um, so that is who will be judged. Um, now, important question here is, who rises from the dead? Just those who are destined for eternal life with God? No, it's everybody, everybody, okay? So Christians believe in a universal resurrection of the dead. Um, it's not that there's a resurrection uh, only to life and the rest just sort of like, you know, are unhappily separated from their bodies for all eternity. No, that's not it. Uh, it's, it's that you know, whether, whether, uh, whether saved or damned, you live in a resurrected body, which should make the idea of hell in a resurrected body even more terrifying, right? I mean, let's just say that, right? Because look, if you don't have a body, can you feel pain? If your body's dead, can you feel pain? Let me just ask this. No, you can't. 
okay? Uh, because your body's dead. It's in the ground. It doesn't do anything. Um, but to experience judgment in a body is a terrifying thing. Um, so that's just something to kind of keep in mind. I think this is actually the root of a lot of issues in the church today where we just don't take the body seriously enough. Um, now, there's a great debate about this, right? It's like, well, how can we say that people don't take the body seriously when all you, you just notice all kinds of things like, you know, piercings are on the rise. I don't know if you've noticed it, but lots of people have tattoos, probably people in this room, right? Okay, I get it. I understand it. You know, and you might say, well, how can you say that people don't take the body seriously when there seems to be such a, uh, an obsession with the body? Um, diets, exercise, I mean, all those things. And I'm, I'm right there with you. Like, I'm, I'm like, yeah, work out, like, all those things. But I would actually question whether or not we take the body more seriously. I actually think we don't really. We don't take, we don't take the body nearly as seriously as ancient Christians um, who... Uh, who believed that the bodies of the departed were sacred to an extent that we just don't. Um, and, and I'll say this because part of the problem that we have, and there's a lot more to say in the Resurrection of the Dead section, but we just don't like to think about death at all. I mean, think about the last funeral you attended. I mean, how long ago was it? If at all, right? When my grandmother died, um, it was the first time that five of my seven, you know, my, my mother and her six siblings had seen a dead body. The two who had seen a dead body were a doctor and a nurse. Okay, so consider that for a moment. They'd just never seen a corpse, ever. Um, and, and when I was there, it was, I was there holding her hand as she died, and I, and I thought, like, you know, this is just normal for me. I mean, I, I, that's what I deal with as a priest, like, a lot. Um, but it's just we keep that out of our view. Right? We just don't want to see it. So we have, we have places for that. Uh, we sort of hide that. Right? Um, ancient Christians did not hide that. In fact, there's consume, considerable evidence that um, uh, one of the realities in places like Rome in the first three centuries was that you might go to church and have a rotting corpse of somebody that you were in church with two weeks prior, right next to you in open air down in the catacombs. Smelling it, all of it, why? This is actually why the Romans, you know, were really good at incense. For one, it's for one thing, right? Because it's, look, a crypt is not a place where you, you know, wanna be very often, it's very stinky because they believe in the communion of saints, and they believe that the church is gathered together in the Eucharist in this mystical way where those Christians who are alive with those Christians who are dead have a mystical union in Christ. That's what they believed. So better to be with them than apart from them. Does that make sense? Also, you're hiding out from Romans who want to kill you, but that's another thing altogether. Um, uh, it's also that uh, the crypts of ancient um, households, of especially the wealthy, were big, and there was lots of space. Um, but that's just kind of give you an idea of this. Like Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead. Um, another vision of this is, um, another way to see this is uh, that uh, in, in many places, uh, the word resurgum is seen in, uh, in, in, uh, in cemeteries. Of course, even the word cemetery is a little bit like strange to Christians or should be. Um, but it means I will arise. 
um, and, and be judged. That's what it's referring to, resurgam, I will arise. Um, another just kind of general comment is that uh, in the ancient church and straight up till very recently, um, most people were buried in the churchyard. So if you've been to England or places like that and, and you walk through the churchyard, or even some places in America, right? You go to Boston or Charleston or whatever it is, there, there are graves all over the place out in front of churches. New Orleans is like that too. Why? Why bury, why bury people in the churchyard? Why can't they? Let's just buy some acreage outside of town so we don't have to pay attention to it, right? Like, I think this is a radical idea that Christians used to have. It's like, well, we're going to walk through the communion of saints into the worship of the communion of saints, right? There's this very clear understanding of, like, we are the church, living and dead. And, it's, and, it, and it is the living and the dead that will be raised, that will, that will face judgment together. Um, so this is a really big, a really big thing. Uh, but we like to take those kind of ideas and just be like, put them on the outside of town where they belong. Right? That's what civilized people do. Um, I'm, I, I openly question that, right? <laughs> um, and and uh, have, have made various proposals that the church, uh, that churches be able to have their own churchyard in, in the city of Waco, um, and people be able to be buried on the grounds, right? Um, but they so far have gone nowhere. But the mayor's in support, so that's good. Um, it may go nowhere. Uh, but let's just talk about this again, this, this idea of judgment. And, um, and I, I mentioned before that it, it's terrifying to be, to be judged in a body, right? Because that means that you can experience things like pain and, and the rest. Um, but here's the question. Should you be afraid of God's judgment? The unrepentant should fear God's judgment, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But if I am in Christ, I need not fear God's judgment, for my judge is my Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves me, died for my sins, and intercedes for me. So this is the language that, that we really have to get, is that my judge is my Savior in one person. Okay. Um, what a wonderful thought, right? Uh, that that uh, the, the fear of judgment, um, knowing Christ should leave us. I mean, what do we have to be afraid of if the very one who promises life to us is our judge. Um, and this is, this is a great way to put this. Um, I, think, I think a lot of people today uh, have, have come through Christian um, uh, teaching that, that says something about something like assurance. Anyone? You know, singing blessed assurance and all the rest, right? Um, I'm, 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 uh, I, think, I think we should have a rather complicated understanding of, of, or our relationship to such ideas should be complicated, right? I mean, in one sense, right, the, the Christian life is full of kind of consolations, right? I mean, they happen. They happen a lot. I was sitting in one of the pews this morning and just sort of like could not stop smiling. I was so, so filled with kind of like a, 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 a joy that should not be in me because I got like three and a half hours of sleep last night. Right, I was just so elated, right? Because there were all these little kids sitting right in front of me that were constantly turning back and just looking at me and making faces at me, and I was like, "This is awesome!" Like that, I get to be the priest of this parish. Awesome, uh, and I was just like, "Yeah, this is great." Okay, fine, right? Um, but here's part of the problem: those can make us presumptuous, can't they? It's like, oh, I have all these good feelings towards God, and isn't that a sign that like I'm okay? Well, not necessarily. Um, 
those can be, the heart is, is very deceitful. And sometimes you'll think like, oh, everything's fine. And it's like, no, your spiritual life is a wreck. Um, what do Anglicans teach about this? I should just say as we, as we think about judgment. Well, A, we've got to keep in mind that our judge is our savior. That's really important. But I also think that we should just sort of, we should leave all that to God, I think. Um, because there's so much presumption that goes with these, with these ideas. Um, and simply believe in the promises of God in Scripture. Um, attempt to live as, 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 um, as clearly in line with the will of God as revealed in Scripture as we can. Um, I think that's been lost in a lot of ways. I, I really do believe, um, and I'll share this with you, that, that a kind of doctrine of assurance has led to a lot of presumption in the church just as this idea of bare belief has led to a lot of presumption in the church. So I was sharing with them earlier, you know, this idea of, um, you know, well, you know, I can have whatever identity I want as long as I believe in the right things. It's like, you can't. Um, because actually, for the Christian to be in Christ um, actually supersedes what you may or may not believe, actually. Um, actually, I think what you personally believe is of very little account at the end of the day. I'll just be blunt about that. Um, I, I think that what I want to believe or think I believe is of very little importance at all, actually. Um, I'm not smart enough. Um, I don't talk to God in my sleep or in my waking, thanks, you know. That just doesn't happen, okay? I'm not a prophet, I'm, I'm, I'm a parish priest, I've got minimal theological training, if you count three years, it's been, compared to some, it's like very little. But it's like, look, the reality of it is that um, you do a lot better as a Christian to just sort of accept it. Just look for things that you can believe, right, that are, that are out there for you, right, instead of trying to challenge everything that comes in front of you. Um, but assurance is another issue, right? It's this, it's this issue of, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saved, and nobody's going to take that away from me. Like, well, you need to read some Scripture, Right? Because the uh, letter to the Hebrews is pretty clear that like those who are once enlightened and fall away, it's darn impossible for them to be enlightened again. Um, so there's a lot there that should, that should shake us of that. Um, look, I get wanting to, be, to feel secure in God. Right? But the testimony of the great saints throughout time is, the Christian life as you mature in it is absolutely terrifying. It really is. Like, it's hard. Um, it's awful. Um, it can often be like dying over and over and over again. Um, and we have to understand that and know that. Now, am I saying that we should go around feeling dour all the time and terrified of judgment? Not at all. Um, but I do want to issue kind of a warning to say, um, just, as, just as presumption is bad, so is a kind of despair. And somewhere in the middle, in the midst of that paradox, is the right place, right? Um, and uh, and that's a hard thing to that's a hard thing to, to carry out in your life because you just say, well, like, like, what am I supposed to do then? It's like trust in God, trust in Jesus. Like that's all you got. Um, so I want you. I want to make that clear. We we often trust in this idea of our. And Father Jonathan's going to talk about this in the homily. We trust in our salvation more than we trust in Jesus sometimes, and that's bad. Okay, so go ahead.
Oh, in the in in the ascension. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's here that we're going to turn to our trusty 39 articles, okay? Like, not because I think that you should, you know, absorb every word and, and be bound to it, but just because it's a helpful illustration of this. Um, they are in the prayer book. And used to what they look like in the previous prayer book, so I'm, I'm not remembering where this is dealt with. Okay. Question 22. Uh, the XXII for those non-Latin numeral types. Um, it's on page 780 in the prayer book. Um, there's, a, there's a whole clause in the 39 articles that speaks against Romish doctrine. Okay, so that's great fun. Have, should always have an article on Romish, Romish doctrine, and especially purgatory. So this, this article deals with the question of purgatory. What do you do with this idea of an intermediate state? What's it like? How does it work? Um, and let me just say, before we get going, like on this, on this question of intercession, because I think it is tied to this question of judgment. Like, okay, so judgment's coming in the future. What happens in the meantime when I'm dead? <laughs> okay? Let's just throw it out there. Um, Look, I'll just tell you, I do believe in an intermediate state, and it might not be pleasant, okay? There might be a lot of anguish involved. Okay, that's fine. Um, what do we call that? I don't know. But I think there is an intermediate state. I think there has to be if we wait for judgment, okay? I'll just say that. Um, what's it like? I don't know. Can we pray? I hope so. Like, I think so. Um, can we know what's going on on earth and respond in our prayers? I hope so, but I don't know. Um, so here's, here's what the article says um, about this. Basically, it just says that the invocation of saints is a fond thing vainly invented and grounded upon no warranty of Scripture, but rather repugnant to the Word of God. Okay, so having said that, now I'm going to contradict it. <laughs> uh, invocation means something very different from intercession. Would you not agree? Like, invocation could be taken to mean something like um, necromancy. And in fact, prior to the Reformation, that happened a lot. It's like, you know, Saint so-and-so, come and help us. Like, do I think such prayers are good prayers? No, I don't. Because, look, Saint so-and-so is dead. Can't help you. Okay? Just say that strongly. However, Christians have always believed and should believe rightly in the in in the idea that those that the faithful departed can pray. And we might ask their intercession as members of the communion of saints. Is that invocation? I don't think so. Um, it's not a kind of worship, it's not any of that. Um, so I think there's a balance to be struck. Is that help is that helpfully answer your question? Um, Right. 
Well, what is the communion of saints? We'll get to that in the, in the catechesis. But, but the communion of saints is the body of Christ, right? It's his body, okay? So let's, let's kind of obliterate some categories for a moment. Like, is there a difference between Christ's body of the church and his living, praying body at the right hand of the Father? Well, yes, but not as much as you might think, right? There's a reason we refer, I mean, there's a reason that Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ. Why does he say that? Well, he says it because the church acts as Jesus in the world, right? It's continuing, uh, it's the continuation of the incarnation. Um, and what, what does Jesus do at the right hand of the Father? Well, he intercedes. I mean, I have difficulty imagining a church that doesn't intercede, whether dead or alive. So I'll just say that. Um, the question is, can you, uh, can you invoke a saint to pray for you? And I think Anglicans have been a little bit spotty on that. I'll just say uh, there have been those who have explicitly rejected that, clearly. There have also been those like C.S. Lewis who say, gosh, I hope so, right? And, <laughs> and I hope so enough that I'm willing to go do it, right? And I'll just say, I fall in the latter camp, okay? Do it all the time. Um, why do I do it? Well, because if the only interceder, if the only if the only intercessor we ever needed was Jesus, why would we bother asking so and so to pray for us? Like, who cares? Like, they're not like if I ask John to pray for me, he's not at the right hand of the Father. Like, why am I bothering? Well, I'm bothering because he's a member of the body of Christ. He's a member of Christ, and his his prayers are heard because of that. Is that helpful? Like, I think that's important. Um, the question is, can you ask members of the communion of saints departed to pray for you? And I think, gosh, I sure hope so. And I hope so enough that I'm willing to do it um, as an act of trust in God. But is that invocation in the, in the Romish sense of the you know, early 16th century? I don't think so. I mean, just from a historic perspective, um, there was a lot more going on at that point. Now, I may sound like John Henry Newman before he went to Rome, and I, I hope so. Uh, but, but here I am, you know, and the reality of it is that I think that, um, um, look, we don't live in the 16th century, okay? We live in the 21st century, okay? Uh, is it 21st? Yeah, it is 21st. <laughs> um, Lots of those theological questions have changed immensely, not just in not just in Anglicanism, but in the Roman Catholic Church as well. Lots of things have changed. Like, um, so, yeah, I just say I'm over it. To be honest, to be really blunt with you, I'm just over any objection I might have about that. Um, except that I would say, um, and and I would say Roman Catholics are really clear about this too. Necromancy is straight out. <laughs> I'm like, can't call up the dead and have them come to you. But I think they're are Roman Catholic traditions of praying to saints to ask them to come do something for you. And I think that's a little bit on the edge, quite a bit on the edge. Is that helpful? Yeah. <laughs> Clear as mud. Well, hear me, like, I'm going to say really strongly, we have no greater advocate or intercessor than Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because he's not just a human being, he's God. Okay? 
Like, the perfect mediator between God and man. I'll also say this as well. I don't believe there are any other mediators but Jesus. Soul, lone mediator. Okay, why? Because he is in his person a mediator between God and man. Of course. Um, but I would just... I would just volunteer that, like, there's a difference between mediation for our salvation and mediation for, or intercession for, like, to be healed of something. Does that make sense? Like, of course we do. Um, and we do it all the time, right? Say, so please pray for me. Of course. We say this all the time. Um, I think that, I think that what we have lost, especially because of our lack of awareness of the dead, is this lack of awareness of the communion of saints surrounding us. And I think, I think we need to be awakened to that again. I'll just put that out there. Does that, does that make sense? Like, I think, I think we, we do well to remember the dead. And I'll say that in reverse, too. So we do well to remember the dead in our prayers. Like, now, there's an uneasy relationship there, and Anglicans usually fudge it, right? Um, instead of praying for the repose of the soul of the dead, what do we do? We give thanks for the dead in the liturgy. Right? Because that's something that we can all do. Okay? Now, I recognize that some of you do not pray for the dead. That's fine. That's what our liturgy allows for. I do. And, and I'm going to keep doing it. And, <laughs> and we won't have any squabbles about that. Right? Um, but, but there's the other part of it is that, um, um, we, that intercession goes both ways, I think. Um, and I just say that there's a long tradition of thinking that. Um, good? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and I recognize that may be completely foreign to a lot of you. Fine. Um, it's not foreign to the ancient practices of the church. I'll say that. Like, those ideas are not foreign. Um, now, there's disagreement about it, but it's all on good terms. Um, and, well, to be even more clear, the undivided church does not have a problem with either. Like, it's, it's not a question. Um, so, we good? We ready to go? All right. So, moving on about the fear of God. What does Scripture mean when it tells you to fear God? It means that I should live mindful of His presence, walking in humility as His creature, resisting sin, obeying His commandments, and reverencing Him for His holiness, majesty, and power. Okay, so this, this looking forward to future judgment, and this is really apropos because we're, we're heading, we're barreling towards Advent. Um, and Advent is the season in which we look forward to the coming of Christ, both in his incarnation and his birth, really. Um, I feel the need to say this, like Christmas is a feast of the incarnation, but it is not the feast where we remember the incarnation. The incarnation is commemorated on March 25th. Okay, so to be clear about that, like, we believe in the incarnation happening at conception, not birth, so just be clear about that. But, but Advent is actually more about not sort of welcoming the incarnate Christ as it is about looking forward to future judgment. That's, that's that coming that we're, um, that we're looking forward to. Um, and so how should we do that? Well, mindful of his presence, um, walking in humility as his creature. So it's, it's both to live with an eye towards the transcendent majesty of God in Christ, and also to our state as creatures, which is as nothing, essentially. Um, resisting sin. There's a good sermon coming on this. It's coming at 1045. Uh, <laughs> um, look, repentance is wrapped up in the Christian life. A Christian life without repentance is no Christian life. Um, now, 
Just because some of us find repentance, all of us find repentance difficult, right? Does that mean that it's not worthwhile? Hardly. In fact, I would just say to you in my own life, there have been sins that I have persisted in trying and trying and trying and trying to be rid of for 20 plus years, 30 years, okay? And only now I'm having any, any success in being delivered from, okay? Well, why? Is it because God didn't care about me for 30 years? No. It's because sometimes it takes 30 years to have that kind of thing happen, and, you know, you just have to be persistent. Like, persistence is important, right? Um, and so, uh, so resisting sin is really key. Um, although, I should say, how do you resist sin? Like, with muscles? With, with, no, 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 no. With the, the weapons of grace. Um, the, the tools of grace. Um, obeying his commandments and reverencing him for his holiness, majesty, and power. So just as we must resist sin, we also have to obey his commandments. So it's, it's both a, a, a turning away from sin, but that's not repentance. That's half of repentance. The fullness of repentance is turning away from sin and, obe- and turning to obedience. Okay? Um, repentance is metanoia. It's a, it's a 180. It's not just a 90-degree angle. I mean, that does nothing for anybody, um, but it's a 180. It's turning away from my will toward God's will. It's turning away from disobedience towards obedience. Um, I once heard a confession. Uh, I, I can share this with you because I'm not going to name. I'm not going to out the person. I'm going to say person instead of you know he or she. Um, so you'll have to forgive that for a moment. But this particular person was telling me, like, I can't think of any sins that I've really committed. And I sat there and I said, well, that's unfortunate. Uh, here, here's a preparation guide that may be helpful for you in the future. But for now... Let me ask you what you haven't done. And then it was like, (laughs) and she was, he he or she was, you know, uh, uh, upset and and frustrated and like, you know, like, I just can't do X, Y, Z, and it kills me. It's like, okay, now we're getting somewhere, right? Because uh, I'll just say this, most people struggle with sins of commission. It's what we do that really bothers us. But, you know, some of us deal with sins of omission. It's like all the stuff we can't do. Um... Look, repentance requires both actions, both turning away from sin and obedience to God. And, and the two go together, right? Uh, look, sometimes the reason you can't get over the particular sin is you're not replacing it with obedience. You're just trying to be rid of the sin and not replacing it with prayer or, like, you know, loving your neighbor. Um, the most success you can possibly have in resisting sin comes when you add obedience in as well. Um, it's, it's uh, the, the two are tied together. Okay. And reverencing him for his holiness, majesty, and power. Um, to live as one who lives in expectation of judgment is to live in worship. Constant worship. Um, well, why? Because if you live in a state of expectation of judgment, you're living with an expectation of what your life will be. Right? Which, look, if you, if you get anything else from catechesis, nothing else from catechesis, just get this. Like, the, the, the heavenly redeemed life is not a kind of like, oh, 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 like, oh, where'd you get your harp? It's like, no, that's not it at all. Um, it is a life of worship of God. If it's nothing else, it's that. It's all worship. Um, and you might say, well, that sounds dreadfully, dreadfully boring. It's not. Right, it's just not. Um, 
and you know, I don't know, I don't know what to say to help that. I mean, it's just sort of like, well, okay. Um, well, no, I do have something to say about that. Uh, a friend of mine, Tish Warren, who, who wrote a wonderful book, uh, kind of Prayer in the Night and, and Liturgy of the Ordinary, uh, she she had a professor once who um, was, she she had been reading a book and she just thought it was awful. And this professor told her a story. She said, well, so I had this student and um, the professor said, well, we were reading Augustine's Confessions. And the student was really struggling with reading Augustine's Confessions and just said, well, you know, professor, it's just so boring. And the professor, in sort of despair, said, it's not boring, you're boring. <laughs> it's like, okay, if we struggle to have imagination about how worship can be wonderful and exciting and, and glorious for all eternity, it's not that that idea is boring, it's that we're boring, okay? We're the boring ones, okay? Worship is, is, is the most amazing thing, and you, and you can't get enough of it. Um, so, so just hear that. Um, and, and I think that's true, actually. That's when I read the confessions with my kids on Friday afternoons, which is my job as the father of the family, uh, in these days of homeschooling, is like, you know, the kids are often like, oh, you know, the Augustine again. Well, and they perk up after a while because they realize, like, they, got, he, they and Augustine have something in common, right? Um, which is that they're a wreck and they know they need God, okay? So that's great. Um, and they find it quite entertaining to know that, to just know how much they're not alone in that. Um, so there you have it. Um, and look, if, you, if you've never tried to read Augustine because you think, oh, it's going to be boring, give it another shot. You'll be amazed. If you've, if you've also tried to read it as a, as a high school student or whatever it was, or give it another read. It probably improved. Um, okay. How do you rightly live in the fear of God? With the help of the Holy Spirit, I examine my conscience according to the Word of God. Particularly useful are the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, as well as godly counsel of fellow Christians and the moral teaching of the church. Okay, I love this question. Right? How do I rightly live in the fear of God? You might say, well, it's not just a feeling I can sort of conjure up, is it? That's not what the fear of God is. What is it? It's, it's to recognize God in daily life. It's to live in his presence, as the, as the previous question says, to live mindful of his presence. Well, how do you do that? By daily examination of conscience. Um, the great spiritual writers are all like univocal on this. It's, it's, look, if you want to get holy, you have to think about your sin every day. Is that painful? Yes. Is it worthwhile? Yes. Why? Because if you spend even just five minutes at the end of it, at the end of a day before you go to bed, just say, what did I, what did I get wrong today? Okay, well, I lost my temper with my kids. I didn't answer that stupid email that I've been putting off for four days, five days, okay, two weeks, right? I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Um, I, oh, I did do that. <laughs> okay. That's all it's got to be. And you just, at the end of it, say, look, Father, I'm sorry for all the ways in which I failed. <laughs> and, and would you please help me tomorrow? Okay. It's key. It really is. Um, and, and not just remember the things that, that fill you with guilt, but the things that don't. Um, very important. Okay, well, how do you do this? Well, you do it according to the Word of God. And you use things like the Ten Commandments. Okay? Um, this is why I am, I am brutal about this with people. It's like, you must memorize the Ten Commandments. Just like the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. Memorize the Ten Commandments. Why? Okay. We're going to get to the Ten Commandments in this catechesis class, but just hear this for now. The Ten Commandments are set apart 
in the book of Exodus because they are heard by the people audibly. And at the end of the Ten Commandments, they say to Moses, would you please ask God to stop talking to us audibly because we can't stand it and we'll probably die. Okay? That's what sets the Ten Commandments apart in the initial phase. It's not that they're written on a tablet of stone, it's that God speaks them audibly to the people. Okay? And that's why in the Jewish tradition, leading into the Christian tradition, they are incredibly important because it's the audible word of God to his people. Okay? Um, and they cover all the territory. It's a comprehensive guide to um, our ethical and moral life. Right? So memorize them. Um, <laughs> and uh, I even have my kids memorize them. And they're like, Dad, what's adultery? I'll tell you later. Okay? Just, just for now, you need to know that adultery is evil and sinful. Okay? That's it. Okay? Um, that'll help you later on when, you, when, when your kids ask. Just say, well, you know, I'm not going to tell you that right now, but I'll tell you later. Just know that for right now, it's, it's against the commandments of God. Okay. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is really helpful. Sometimes in, sometimes in hearing a confession, I'll just say, you need to read Matthew 6 in its entirety before you leave. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is, is very convicting. Um, and it is the, actually, biblically, it's, it's Jesus' re-rendering of the law. Um, so you, that's really important. Um, if you want an examination of conscience, sometimes just reading the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety is really important. Um, and, and I would actually say that you should probably do that monthly, quarterly, yearly at least, um, as well as the godly counsel of fellow Christians. Why do we say that? You know, if you have a Bible, what do you need the godly counsel of fellow Christians for? Let me just say this. There are hairy moral issues that Scripture does not address. Okay? There are also hairy moral issues that Scripture does address, and you just don't know it yet. There are hairy moral questions that Scripture does address that I just don't know it does yet. Okay? I need somebody to talk to me to say, yeah, that's a problem. Okay? I also need somebody to talk to me to say, why are you worried about that? That's nothing. But I'm really guil- I feel really guilty about it. Well, stop. You know? Like, part, part of what I'll tell you is, a, as a, uh, is just an encouragement about confession is, it never ceases to amaze me how I will go to confession with something bearing on my conscience like, like nothing ever has, and I feel awful about it. I feel guilty as hell, okay? I go into confession, I mention something offhand, and that priest, all the time, nails me on that one thing. You did what? Like, <laughs> and I'm like, but what about this other stuff? He's like, no! Like, you did what? Like, you did that? Like, like I'll, I'll be like, and all these things are awful. And I just really have a hard time paying attention during, during, during worship. I'll be like, that's bad. <laughs> I'll be like, thank you for really, you know, encouraging me. The other thing that I'll say too is, is that I almost always have something on my conscience that's just killing me. And I'm like, yeah, this is really bad. And the priest will be like, oh, that's no big deal. Like, care to say that again? Why? Well, you know, you can't really do anything about that, can you? Like, oh, I was really angry about X, Y, Z. Well, of course you were. There's nothing wrong with that. Were you angry the next day? No. Okay. Well, there you go. Like, that's okay. You can be angry about a thing for a day. It's okay. Just don't let the sun go down on it. Like, that's encouraging to me, right? Because it says sometimes the things I get hung up on are not the things I need to be get hung up on. So we look for 
other Christians to counsel us in that way. It's also the reason to read some really good uh, sources in, in uh, moral theology in particular. It's like really helpful. Um, I find like, I know it's dry reading, but for me, I just love reading the Summa. Thomas Aquinas' Summa is just great for this. It's like the moment that I'm a little unclear as to what, you know, this, this, that, or the other thing might be. You know, Thomas comes down and just nails it for you, and he's like, oh, that was really helpful. Like, now I understand what you're talking about. I understand what, what that is. Um, okay. And then the moral teaching of the church. So the moral teaching of the church is, is uh, well, contained in various sources. Like, you know, we're not Roman Catholics, so you can't just, like, grab a catechism and say, well, what, what's the moral teaching of the church? But you can grab a catechism and say, what's the moral teaching of the church here? Because uh, the, uh, the, um, the sorting through of the Ten Commandments is really exhaustive, I think. Um, but it's also that there is a long-standing tradition of moral thinking in the church that really does matter and is, and is important. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd say in particular on things like, um, like uh, well, you know, how do we think about war, right? Um, how do we think about human life? Um, how should we think about, uh, oh, even sins that we don't even like to recognize as sins like usury. Do you know what, anybody know what usury is? Charging ridiculous amounts of interest, like 4%, 5%, that's a sin, according to the church's moral tradition, right? So your credit card company is, you know, like, and I've even said this, like, if, if a payday lender shows up at church and wants to be baptized, they want to be catechized, that's fine, I'll catechize them, but they want to be baptized, you've got to quit your job, man. Like, you can't go abuse the poor and be baptized. That can't happen. Um, so, you hear? Like, that, that's really key. Like, there's an there's a exhaustive moral teaching on that question. Like, so there you have it. Um, and, and furthermore, like, I'm not just going to, like, baptize you so that you can go be like the... Like the um, the servant who's forgiven of a terrible, over-consuming debt and then goes jacking people up over 50 bucks. Like, not going to do it. Does that make sense? So, like, there's a lot of that that we just sort of have to get in our, in our ideas, right? Um, and I find this um, to be just incredibly invigorating. It's not, it's not as bad as you'd think. It's not like, oh, gosh, why would I want to know how awful I am? No, that's not it. Um, the reason is so that you can actually see with open eyes what the will of God is. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, I, I want to add one more thing, which is that our moral view will necessarily or should necessarily expand over our lifetime. So that the things that once we thought were, you know, just like the real sin, right? The real sins. It's going to change, right? Every young person struggles with lust, okay? And if you don't, it's probably because you have some other psychological issue, right? Like, uh, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you and say that, like, Everybody does, whether you're married, unmarried, whatever it is, you all do, okay? And at about 40 or 50, usually no later than that, you make, you, there's a little transition. And you're like, okay, well, now I'm, I'm grown up, and uh, good Lord, now I'm, in, now I'm in real trouble because I have to deal with my pride or my arrogance or my, you know, I don't want to grow up. I want to be a little kid all the time. I want to be like Peter Pan, and, and why can't I be like that? Okay, I think, well... There, there's, there's room for improvement here, and, and that's something you have to deal with. Okay, so just a thought. There will always be sins to deal with, okay? Um, one of the things I love about Teresa of Avila is she's just like very real about these things and just says, look, there's always something to deal with. Um, even when you're a mystic like me, you have, to, you, have to, you, have to, you have to deal with really unpleasant sin that you, just, that you still have. Um, but the relationship does change, and it gets better, and you know, all that's good. Okay. 
How does the church exercise its authority to judge? And I say this as I know we're going over time, and I'm trying not to do that in our new schedule. The authority Christ gave to the church to judge is most often exercised by declaring God's forgiveness and absolution. However, a priest acting under the authority of the bishop may suspend a person from receiving communion because of scandalous and unrepented sin in order to draw them to repentance and restoration. Okay, so this is good fun. All right, look, this is often surprising to people, but look, we Anglicans are not all, you know, kind of like nice all the time, right? There is room for, you are not to receive communion. Um, why? Well, Scripture's really clear about this, right? The reason that some people are dying is because they aren't giving due reverence to the Eucharist in their daily lives. Like, they're committing sins that are grievous to God. And then they presume to go and participate in the body and blood of Christ. Okay? Like, not good, I'd be no kind of pastor if I let you do that and know about it, right? Now, at this point, it's always kind of like, well, but what sins are the ones that I really need to worry about when it comes to communion? It's like, okay, look, the the prayer book actually gives a bit of a, a rundown of this. It's like, publicly scandalous sin is always a kind of excommunicable offense, right? It's always like, look, you can't receive communion, right? Um, but there's more than just that. Um, sometimes it's like, and this is, this is where I'd put it. I just say, you did it, and you're proud of it, and you don't want to repent of it. That's a pretty good sign you shouldn't be receiving communion. Okay? You know it's wrong, you're still going to do it. You know it's wrong, and you're going to keep doing it. Okay? That's a good sign that you should not receive. Right? Um, and you should probably do that to yourself. Um, and until you're willing to come to confession and make that clear, um, I would say, don't receive communion. If, however, it dogs your conscience and you're really upset about it, well, first, make a confession. Second, like, you're probably, let me just say this, you're probably asking for God's grace in heaping helpings. And sometimes there are, and this is where getting good counsel really does matter, it's like you need God's grace in order to have any victory over these sins at all. Okay, so sometimes the answer is like, I know you. I know you feel weird about receiving communion. Well, you're well. This is still going on, and you're still going to keep doing it. But like, what are your options? You're not persisting in it. Not not radically. You're not sitting there saying I'm going to keep doing it. You're you really do want to be done with this, but it, the power's not in you to do it. So. Sometimes the answer is, like, keep receiving that grace. Keep going to it. Um, but also, I, I just need to make a plug for confession, right? Because let me just give you the, the basic rundown of historically how confession uh, came into being, like auricular confession. Okay. In the old school days of the church, if you committed a horrible, scandalous sin and you were baptized, you got excommunicated literally, like thrown out. Um, and sooner rather than later, you'd have to, hang outside the church doors in sackcloth and ashes, mourning and wailing for your sin. And I mean, literally, like, what you have to do is, like, sit there in sackcloth and ashes and just, like, do this and, and wail, okay? Um, even if you don't feel like it, do it anyway. It'll be good for you, okay? All through Lent, at least, you have to do that. And then, at, like, 
Holy Saturday, sometime in the afternoon, you have to stand before the church and tell everybody what you did. And tell them how sorry you are. And then you'll be embraced by the bishop and restored to communion. What a wonderful thing. And you only get one shot at it. That's it. Like, you do it again, you're done. Like, forget about it. Uh, well, this is, this is a problem. It's a pastoral problem for several reasons. One is it leads to people delaying baptism because they say, well, I don't really want to go through that. So like, maybe, maybe the priest just come when I'm dying and baptize me then. And people literally do this, and the church fathers are always upset about it because it's like, well, you know, if you, were, if you were really serious about the life of God and the life of the church, then you would be baptized today, right? And like, you know, and Augustine has these wonderful scenes where he's pointing to those who've signed up for baptism, and he's pointing to those who are still catechumens and saying, look at these people, they're, 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 they are, they love God and you don't. Like, these people are serious about this and you're not. Like, get with the program, like, sign up. <laughs> so that's happening, okay? On the other end is, some sins are not personal in the sense that it was just me, only I know about it. Like, sometimes it's like, well, I had an affair with your husband or your wife, and you're going to say that in church on Holy Saturday and expect there not to be a fight about it? Like, this is a problem, okay? So in the spirit of getting this all working, one of the things that was started to be offered was to say, look, the, the, the power given to the apostles is is the ability to forgive sin and absolve of sin. So the way that that began to be applied was to say, okay, well, you have to be formally readmitted, but we don't know if you've sinned so seriously or not. So a new practice came into being. It was offer absolution in the context of a private confession where only a priest or a bishop can hear it and then say, okay, well, uh, I absolve you. Nobody has to know. In fact, nobody can know, okay? Because the, the canons have always covered that. In order to protect that as a pastoral method of dealing with sin in the church, priests have always been sworn to utter secrecy regarding the content of confession, okay? It's absolute. Father, is the seal of confession absolute? Yes, okay, there you go. <laughs> that means you could tell me, Father, there's a bomb under the altar, and 30 minutes after I, you know, and... and uh, and, you know, I'm going to leave, and then I'm going to set it off. And I'm like, well, I still have to hear more confessions. Okay, well, I'm dying then. That's it. Because I can't act on a confession even to save my own life. Okay? Oh, that's, that's just crazy. It's like, well, well what's, what's, the, what's the spirit of this? I'm just going to give it to you. Look, when we face judgment, we face a, a judge who is more intent on our salvation than our damnation. God wants you to receive his mercy far more than he wants you to receive judgment and condemnation, okay? And that is shown to us in this, in this wonderful gift to the church, that God, God cares more about mercy than judgment. And that's why people have often said to me, like, well, you might have to, like, cover for awful people who do awful things. Like, I might have to and I have, What's your point? Well, they want justice. Too bad. You're looking to you're looking to a church to a church that has no ability to judge because Jesus is the judge alone, right? And we don't dispense justice. We dispense mercy as a first order good. Okay? Like so can we be clear about that? Like that's scandalous. I understand it. The mercy of God is scandalous. Okay? 
but that's what's on offer. Um, and uh, I want you to hear that because I think that's really key. And, um, and, and I would say, look, there are only two things that, that, that I can really do for you in your sin and grief, et cetera. One is I can give you communion, right? That's really great. We can, we can distribute communion. You can receive participation in the body and blood of Jesus. And I can also hear your confession and offer you absolution. Um, if, if what you want is counseling, I can do that, but it's not the big thing, right? If what you want is somebody to just talk to, that's great. Let's do that. But, it, but it's not the most powerful. <laughs> like, like um, I really want you to hear that it's communion with Jesus always. It is, it is, it is uh, the mercy of Jesus always that is the prime offering of the church. Um, and that's for me as well as you. Um, it's, it's, I have to be reminded over and over and over again, and I say this as I'm still going long. Sorry, Judy. Um, I still, I still, I stand in this way constantly. I just constantly need communion with Jesus. Like, I, I can't live without it. I need Jesus' mercy. I need absolution all the time. Um, and so there it is. All right. Thank you.